I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Back in August, the United States Census Bureau released long-awaited census data collected under the Trump administration. And if you'll remember, they were doing some pretty nefarious things with this process, like trying and failing to add a question about citizenship status, just as an example. But now the data is out, and it will be used to shape everything from congressional maps to the Electoral College and, of course, public policy. Lala Wu, the co-founder and executive director of Sister District, an organization dedicated to building progressive power in state legislatures, joins me to discuss the results of the census and how the data may or may not be used by Republicans to gain additional power at the state level, which they'll use, of course, to do things like roll back reproductive rights like we saw in Texas, and of course, rolling back voting rights like we're seeing all over the country. And Lala Wu is here to answer the question of what can be done. What can be done at the state legislative level to counter these efforts to take us back to the dark ages? So, please enjoy this conversation with Lala Wu of Sister District. Lala Wu, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be back, Jen. Yeah, it's great to have you back. So, I think back in mid-August, maybe it was around August 12th, the Census Bureau released the results of demographic data collected during 2020, right? During It was collected during the last administration. And that data will be used to redraw voting districts. And it's, and it's a huge deal because I think it happens like every 10 years or something. That's right. So can you give us a high level overview of what this process is? You know, everyone was, you know, kind of waiting for this data to come out. But what happens after that? It's collected, it's released, and then what happens? Yes. Yeah, so this data has been eagerly awaited. And what it is, is local population data on a block by block level. And it includes information like race, age, how populous an area is. And it's used for all kinds of things. It has a lot of implications. Businesses use it to think about where to open stores and what to sell. Uh, Governments use it to think about where to put schools and how to disperse resources, you know, where to make investments in transportation. And then of particular interest to me and a lot of politicos is that it's used to redraw district lines for political representation for the next decade. As you said, this only happens every 10 years and it happens as a precursor to redistricting, which we are now in the midst of. So I think some good context for this is that this data is more than four months late, and that's due to the Trump administration's interference. And unfortunately, the accuracy of this census data is going to continue to be a matter of debate, but we're going to have to move forward with you know, what, we, what we have. But I think it's worth pointing out a couple um, parts of a couple aspects here that are going to be interesting to think about, which is that one, you might recall that Trump tried really hard to get a citizenship question added. Yeah, (laughs) I remember. Yes. Yes. And even though the question wasn't added, um, it was still in the news a lot. And a lot of people heard about it. And, you know, we'll never really know the exact effect uh, that it had. But we do know that a higher rate of people there were um, higher rates of people that omitted the question about Hispanic origin or race as compared to past counts. So you know, we can't read too much into that necessarily, but we might be able to see like, oh, it changed people's behavior already. You know, there was a chilling effect, even though the question wasn't actually added. And then, of course, the pandemic meant that, um, you know, there was a real uh, delay in person to person outreach. There was, you know, pauses there. And then the Trump administration, instead of extending some time, giving people some more time to do that kind of person to person outreach that's so important 
for making sure that um, underrepresented populations answer the census, uh, he actually ended the person-to-person outreach earlier. So, you know, those are just a few of the things to consider when thinking, well, what is the census data and how much can it tell us and what are some of its limitations? Right. I'm glad you mentioned the the last administration because I did want to talk about it, but I just wanted to talk about it briefly. Although it's really important in this conversation, we don't want to revisit it too much, right, for obvious reasons. But, you know, I remember that time. There was a lot of really nefarious stuff going on, especially around adding the citizenship question. You know, one of the things that folks were worried about was that he wanted to, I think, count every unauthorized immigrant um, and have those numbers be separate from the rest of the population. And I don't know what the purpose of that was. And also, I'm not really sure what the data, like the resulting data that we got on August 12th, what it shows about how that data was collected under Trump. I mean, do we have any inclination as to how it might be, I don't know, less than sound? We're going to have to continue to, you know, look at what more data comes in. Uh, The census does follow up research um, in subsequent years. And so we'll be able to get kind of a better sense from those numbers that come in in the future. But for now, there's a lot of questions. And all we know is that the census, you know, this was a census like no other, and it's always hard uh, to collect census data, but it was uh, beset by particular challenges. Some of them um, Trump made, you know, in this past past year. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the data that came out, if, I, if I'm recalling correctly, there was actually an increase in populations that are typically undercounted or black and brown communities. Is that true? And if that's so, how, I guess I can't really reconcile that with him trying to undercount those populations. Right. So I think that despite his efforts, uh, the census is still demonstrating the trends in this country at a broader scale. And I think that we can, you know, trust that at at a macro level that that's true. What I think is really interesting is that across the board, we're seeing an increase in diversity. Uh, as particularly in racial diversity. And part of this, though, we do have to be careful of the narrative of a diminishing white population. Um, Hansi Luang at NPR has really excellent coverage on this topic. But basically, we need to be aware of the uh, this narrative that, oh, the white population is decreasing and we're becoming a majority-minority state so quickly. A big part of why we saw such uh, changes is because of the way that the census questions were asked. So in 2020, people were allowed to check more than one box to identify their race. And so a lot more people were identifying as multiracial. So when you hear that number of the white population diminishing, it's at least in part due to the fact that there are fewer people who check white exclusively. And this is, you know, just to add to the idea, additionally, that race is so dynamic, you know, people's understanding of race and where they fit in and their identity within society, you know, continues to change all the time. I mean, I think one really interesting thing is that the greatest rise in any category was 316% for combination white and some other race. So it's, it's a really dynamic situation. And I think there's a lot of subtlety, but I would say the bottom line is that we are increasing in diversity in this country. And that is something that we should see as a good thing. Right. That's really interesting. But I do want to go back to something you said about being cheerful around the narrative of the white population decreasing in comparison to other populations, right? You know, because some of this stuff was going around on social media. And I'm just curious about your take on 
what that means, like why there would be a worry about that narrative and how we talk about it. There's a real concern because research has shown that when you talk about a decline in white population, it really stokes far right, white supremacist anxiety and violence. And there is this link there uh, of, oh, okay, well, if the fill in the blank minorities are taking over and there's no room for white people. And then it stokes this kind of um, uh, uh, anxiety and uh, concern that it could erupt into something bigger. So we just need to be aware of that narrative, particularly as these definitions of race, you know, continue to to be very amorphous. Yeah. And I want to go back to the census in a minute, but I want to stay on this topic because I do really find it fascinating because data are data, right? Like the data is just there, right? Regardless of what the outcome of it is. And it's interesting because I don't think that people would expect the reverse to happen, you know, because, you know, black and brown populations, they go up and down, you know, they're often down. Um <laughs> you know, there isn't the same reaction or the same expectation for a reaction. You know, and I think those anxieties are kind of always there. They were there in 2008 when Obama was elected. They've been there, you know, since the country was founded. So, you know, I mean, I don't really know how we hand, I don't even know if this is a question, but how we deal with this long term, if people are going to be super sensitive to the point where they could become retaliatory or violent when we're just presenting data. Totally. I mean, I think it all comes down to just needing to affect a cultural shift and to be continuing to educate everyone about the, uh, you know, the, the very complicated role that race plays in our American society and helping to, you know, build those bridges and increase tolerance uh, among all of us, because this is, whether you call it a multiracial or some other kind of diverse melting pot, you know, stew, whatever it is, you choose your analogy. You know, this is a, this is a big, diverse country, and um, we need to be able to coexist and live together. And I agree, you know, this is not something that we should except as, oh, okay, like, let's not talk about these kinds of things because we're worried about stoking violence. We certainly need to talk about them. I think it's just interesting to be aware of this connection between the narrative and uh, what can happen. Yeah, I mean, it's math. You can't be mad at math. <laughs> I mean, you can be, obviously. You're totally right. Like, it is, you know, the numbers are what they are. But I also think that when you look at the methodology of how the questions were asked and collected this year, it's different than years previous. And, you know, the census changes in little ways that are substantial every year. And so it's not always apples to apples when you're looking at one census to the next. Yeah. You know, and I want to go back to what we talked about in the beginning, because I I want to keep repeating this. And I've been talking about, you know, gerrymandering and the census data for, you know, the past four years or more. Right. But I want to keep repeating that this is a once in a decade thing that's happened. And the last time this happened, you know, in 2010, you know, we were halfway through um, President Obama's first term. He was elected in 2008. We had super majorities in the House and in the Senate. And during the 2010 midterms, this data and the gerrymandering that resulted from this data, you know, resulted in a bloodbath for, you know, Democrats, right? And I just want to know what has changed this time around, if anything, that will keep Republicans from doing the same thing? Yeah, I think it's worth just staying in the history for a minute here. And 
reminding folks that in 2010, we thought everything was good. I mean, this picture that you just painted, Jen, of Obama being president and us having control of the federal government, we all thought that it was great. We were in this sort of Obama bubble bath, you know, and we thought that everything was fine. And we were very, very surprised when the Republicans implemented their plan called REDMAP. And it's just as nefarious as, you sa- as it sounds. They basically looked at the state legislatures across the country, figured out in a money ball kind of fashion where they could pump a little bit of money to get really strategic, outsized impact results. And they were successful. And so they flipped all of these state legislatures And then these state legislatures, because in most states, state legislatures control redistricting, were able to gerrymander their way into a structural advantage for power, both at the state level as well as the congressional level. And we've been suffering the consequences over the past decade. And, you know, this kind of gerrymandering offends really basic notions of fairness, right? I know that folks may already be familiar with what it is, but I think it's worth a reminder that you know, let's look at the state level of Wisconsin. Dems won every statewide race there in 2018 and over 200,000 more votes total for the state assembly. But because of the unfair maps, Republicans won 63 of the 99 seats, which means that they had, you know, so much more representation where they're not even more, not even a majority of the voters. And it's just, it doesn't make any sense. And so we are projecting, unfortunately, that we're going to see more of this kind of gerrymandering as we look to the next year and as we get set up for the midterms, both at that state and that congressional level. Right. I'm glad you used a real life example because it's really important to drive that point home to how this actually results in, you know, um, election results on the ground. And one of the cases I was thinking about was, you know, Kathy Hochul, Governor Kathy Hochul of, you know, New York State, you know, the first woman governor of that state. And she was actually in Congress at some point. I can't remember what congressional district she was in, but she won during a special election. Right. And I think it was this gerrymandered map, the one that resulted, you know, that came out of the 2010, 2010, that resulted in her district being redrawn and she lost that seat during the following election, right? And, yeah. you know, she was it was kind of like a purple district at some point, and then it was redrawn, and then she lost that congressional seat. Thankfully for us, she became lieutenant governor, and now she's the governor of New York. But that's okay. a real-life example of how that actually happens and what it looks like in real life. So yeah. FYI. Absolutely. I mean, another example is that in 2016 in North Carolina, uh, there was some court wrangling going on, litigation over redistricting. And what Republicans did was they basically cracked North Carolina A&T, which is the country's largest HBCU. They cracked it in half, the campus, leaving a majority minority community represented by two Republicans, right? Which just boggles the mind. <laughs> HBCU, two Republicans, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you'll see this, you know, like in Austin, Texas, for example, There's five districts, I believe, that represent Texas, and only one of them is a Democrat. And of course, we all know that like Austin, Texas is a very, very big place, but it's because they packed everyone into one blue district, and then they cracked the rest of everybody else across these other Republican areas. And so you kind of get this, you know, really weird pie shape where you have these um, districts that fan out into the suburbs, the exurbs to pull in enough uh, Republican voters. And so, you know, it's just, it's quite scary how the technology is getting so good that people can be so incredibly precise. And that's what Republicans are going to be doing with the census data that is basically at this block by block level. There's some exceptions for privacy now that are controversial. 
but that basically at a block by block level, I'm basically able to be really, really precise about, okay, even though there has been major growth in racial diversity, as well as growth in urban areas, both of these things should benefit Democrats. But because Republicans are in control in most of these places where we are going to be redrawing the district maps, they're going to be using this data to draw these tortured lines to gather enough Republicans into these districts to keep their state and their federal reps red. Yeah, well, I guess I have a lot of points to to make in relation to that. But I remember when I started reporting on this, you know, or started talking about not reporting it, but talking about it years ago, I remember discovering Project Red Map and just reading about it. And I just couldn't get enough information about it. And my mind was blown. You know, do you think that years later, we're all generally as an electorate smarter about how that happens, right? Because when I started thinking about it or talking about it, you know, four years ago, five years ago, a lot of people weren't really talking about it. And now it feels like it's everywhere. Or maybe it's just me still talking about it. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I think that you deserve a lot of credit for talking about it back then and for helping get us to where we are now, which is I do believe people are more educated, more informed, more aware of the important role that this kind of arcane, nerdy sounding thing called redistricting has to do with our everyday lives, right? The stakes are really, really high. I mean, of course, we all know the impact that Congress can have on people's lives as we watch these federal policy debates play out on the national stage. But especially at the state level, the stakes are also really high because it's where the rubber hits the road when it comes to so many different kinds of policy. So, for example, just look at voting rights. That's all in the news right now. Um, These uh, voter suppression bills are coming out of state legislatures in Georgia, in Arizona, in Texas, in Florida. And these are states that are controlled by Republicans who were who are safe in their seats because of extreme gerrymandering. And this makes them not accountable to the voters who and because and they don't care about their preferences. So they do whatever they want. Um, You know, most people want more access to the polls. That's what voters want. But they these Republicans sitting in these safe gerrymandered seats don't feel responsible or responsive to their voters. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I discovered when I was looking at the map for these gerrymandered districts from 2010 is that they you said you use the word tortured, these tortured maps. Like they would literally just like slice off tiny pieces of districts just to make their district more red. And, and I think the point I was trying to make when I started my, my last question with saying that, you know, we have the same data, what do they have that allows them to draw districts, you know, so precisely and so unfairly that we don't have access to? I mean, is it a matter, matter of scruples? Is it a matter of technology? What is it? It's just a matter of power, really, that they are, they control the ability to approve and to draw these maps. And You know, it was a push by a lot of Democrats last year, sister district, my organization included, to try to win majorities at the state level so that we could have more of a seat at the table when it comes to redrawing district lines. Because, you know, if we did have the power to do so, then you're exactly right. We could use a lot of this same data to uh, gerrymander or to redistrict at least fairly, right? I should say there are some gerrymandered states gerrymandered in favor of Democrats. Illinois and Maryland are two examples, but the more or less it. Uh, every other example of gerrymandering pretty much in the country is Republican gerrymandering. 
And, you know, as to why we don't have the power to do so, it has so many reasons that uh, we weren't able to kind of hit that goalpost that we were as an ecosystem looking to do last year. But, uh, you know, one of them is the fact that the pandemic happened and made it so that we couldn't really knock on doors. That made things very challenging. Um, you know, we were running on gerrymandered maps to begin with. And so we were facing an uphill battle in a lot of these places. And, you know, Trump was on the ticket and he motivated extraordinary levels of turnout that were, uh, you know, just like really, really historic. Yeah. You know, I should know this. I don't know why I asked you that question, but I should know this about state legislatures, right? Because that is really the key, which is, you know, why you're here in the first place, right? It's it's not necessarily just the data, it's the power, right? Do you know off the top of your head what the balance is like in relation to state legislatures on the side of Democrats and on Republicans? What's the balance right now? Do you know? The balance is not good. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many more uh, Republican trifectas than there are Democratic trifectas. We have made ground in the past uh, 10 years, but it's not anywhere close to parity. So after the 2020 election, there are 37 chambers controlled by Democrats and 61 chambers that are controlled by Republicans. And so this was a slight decline for the Democrats. We lost a few chambers. But I think that the key here is understanding that there's a real imbalance and that Democrats are very much at a disadvantage when you look at the composition of state legislatures and what that disparity in power means for what we're able to do. What we would like to see in an ideal world is more mixed government states, more Democratic trifectas. Just look at Virginia, for example. In Virginia, where we were able to be successful, Sister District was very proud to be part of the coalitions in 2017 and 2019 to turn the Commonwealth into a blue trifecta state. And they were able to accomplish so much. They were able to pass their own voting rights bill where no one else was, you know, where the federal government wasn't able to do so. They were able to pass meaningful criminal legal system reform. They were able to make some meaningful headway on different types of immigration policies, and they were able to legalize recreational marijuana. The list goes on and on and on. All of these things that are incredibly uh, important. Oh, I mean, how could I forget? They abolished the death penalty. They're their first in the right. South to do that, which is amazing. And yeah. this is what we can do with democratic trifecta. And I think that that's something that we should remember is that, you know, as we try to build this power, it's both for these longer term redistricting aims, as well as for the uh, very, very concrete and day to day uh, impact on people's lives. Right. So I want to talk about what can help, right? I know the sister district has, you know, a whole plan to roll out for um, this year and next year and, and beyond. But I want to talk about the role that the For the People Act would play in this whole thing, right? And I also, just kind of a two-parter here, I want to make the distinction between the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which I think was passed in the House recently, just last week, mm-hmm. and the For the People Act. Because although they both are targeted towards, you know, strengthening voting rights, they have very different goals. They have very different umbrellas for me to, as to how they do that. So how would the For the People Act help with gerrymandering And I don't know if you want to draw the distinction between the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Right. So the John Lewis Voting Rights Act is more narrow and covers just voting rights. 
And the For the People Act is much broader. And in addition to voting rights standards, also talks about redistricting as well as election campaign finance reform. So the For the People Act is much, much broader, um, and the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act is, is narrower. That's an oversimplification, but that's one way to think about it. The reason that both of these, either of these, anything that we could get passed along these lines would be so incredible is that if we could get national standards in place, it would go such a long way towards protecting people's access to the ballot. There is such a thing called preemption in this country. We are a federalist um, nation, which means that the states can do their own thing. But, um, you know, if there are federal standards, they have to follow those. And so federal standards when it comes to voting would be amazing. I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to, you know, be on an election hotline or anything like that. But learning the laws of each individual state, it's remarkable how hard it is to vote in some of these places. And so if we had national voting standards, that would go a very long way. Now, of course, even if we were able to pass national voting standards, Republican state legislatures would still stop at nothing to, uh, you know, to find ways to tear all of this down, to um, undermine the spirit of the act, to pass their own laws that still got around what those standards were. But it would still make a really big difference. If I were to pick, honestly, just one, I would pick redistricting reform, however, as one thing that we that could make a huge difference, because there's kind of an argument that it's very tough, but you can theoretically out organizing certain types of voter suppression. You can, uh, it's not easy and it's not the ideal and we shouldn't have to do it, but you can educate people about, hey, maybe it's very difficult to vote, but this is how you do it. Um, This is how we're going to help you get to the polls and help you cast your ballot. But there's really no way to out-organize gerrymandering. And you just, if the numbers are so stacked against you and the maps are so precise based on the data that you've uh, talked about, there's just, there's just no way. So if I were to pick one area, I would, I would probably pick redistricting to reform. Right. And redistricting is a part of the For the People Act, right? That's right. Um, right. Yes. And, and then it includes some things like, you know, I think automatic voter registration and some other things that would just make it just easier for people to vote across the board, if I'm correct. Yes, that's exactly right. And I think that all of that is is much needed and would be incredible. And I think that the, the key redistricting reform is that independent redistricting commissions would be established in every state. And, you know, as we've talked about before, redistricting processes are different state by state. I live in California and here we have an independent redistricting commission that is considered to be quite good and quite fair. There's no perfect way to do redistricting, but this is a pretty good way to do it. Um, There are other states that have different types of redistricting commissions. Some are independent, some are bipartisan, you know, and like I said, most use, uh, most are not by commission, they're both by the partisan state legislatures. So, you know, if we really want a world where a country where we have voters choose their politicians and not the other way around, uh, independent redistricting commissions across the board would go a very, very long way towards helping us get there. (laughs) Unfortunately, it looks like, um, you know, both of these measures face very, um, very uphill battles. Right. That's exactly what you read my mind. That's what I was going to say, because, you know, I have to be honest with you. You know, I thought that when the Biden administration came in and when Biden won and I saw that we had majorities in the Senate and in the House, I thought, you know, that's it. 
<laughs> you know, yeah. the, you know, game over. Puerto Rico are going to become states, and we're going to abolish the electoral college. <laughs> What's happening? I mean, that's a really broad question, but you know, I mean, I guess I know why, but I don't know. I don't know if we could oh, distill it down to a simple. I know we can't. <laughs> we built ourselves a very strange democracy. Yeah. Where we were very, the founding fathers were very, very concerned about uh, too much majority rule. And so we have all of these structures built in to protect the minority vote, which in this case is Republicans, right? Not racial minorities. Um, and so, you know, you see these really perver- perverse outcomes where you can win a popular vote and not the electoral college and still become president. Um, you can see that the Senate means that every state has two senators and there's a real overrepresentation of um, folks who are not living in cities, who are not people of color. And then you have this filibuster which is the immediate problem here, right? This filibuster that has, uh, you know, strange origins and now is standing in our way of passing this sweeping legislation that could be really, really helpful, not just for Democrats, but for everybody. I mean, think about different types of voting access that lots of Republicans use too, just mail-in voting, early voting. Think about retirees who are not able to, to go to their polling place, but have been using mail-in voting for a long time. Like Florida is a really good example of that. So, you know, I, it's it's extremely frustrating that we've built ourselves this very, very bizarre democracy that, um, you know, sometimes I like to <laughs> read the international news a little bit more and dig in there and just remind ourselves that we are just one of many countries and this is a weird one. Um, uh, um, but, you know, I, I think that we're just going to have to keep pushing. And what it really all means and what it comes down to is that given the current framework, given where we are, we would love to have these things passed to the federal level. We need to do this hand-to-hand combat in every single state. These battles for voting rights, battles for reproductive justice, battles for the environment, labor, education, etc. All of these battles just have to move to a state level. And is it as efficient? Is it ideal? No, not necessarily. But is it what we have to do? Yeah, it is. I mean, just I'm thinking right now, my heart goes out to the people in Texas where their heartbeat, so-called heartbeat bill is going into effect. This bill in Texas bans abortions after six weeks. And there's no exceptions for rape or incest. And you know, anybody who knows anything about pregnancy knows that most people do not even realize they're pregnant at six right. weeks. And this is going to make it very, very challenging for people in a gigantic state, you know, who may need to travel very, very far if they're looking to get an abortion. Of course, not everybody is able to do that. And I think one of the scariest things about these laws also is that it allows ordinary citizens to sue abortion providers. Right. You know, that's it's just it's it's just awful. And so. It's a real example of um, why we need to focus at the state level and why as much as we would love to get all these things done at a federal level, you know, we, we don't really have a choice. Right. And, you know, um, the the Texas abortion ban, it's not OK. Right. I mean, that's an understatement. No. It's just not OK on, on any level. And this is the oh. thing that we were talking about, warning about and people saying, you know, being sexist and saying that we were being hysterical about 
in 2016 and before mm-hmm. about, you know, we were going to lose access to abortion, right? Um, yes. And this is, this is how it happens. You know, Roe is still in the Constitution, but we don't have access, you know, free and fair access to, you know, abortion and re- our reproductive rights. I mean, that's it. That's right. And I think you raise a really important point, which is that even with Roe v. Wade, we don't have equal access to abortion in this country by any means. I mean, there's a lot of places where you need to travel you know, like 300 miles to find your closest abortion provider. Um, and that's already the case because of different state laws that are in effect. But I mean, not to be all hands handmaid's tale here, but <laughs> you know, the, the Roe v. Wade may not be around next year. And the Supreme Court has taken up a case from Mississippi that the only reason it would take it up is really so that it could reconsider Roe v. Wade. And so the common wisdom is that Roe v. Wade may very, very well be overturned um, next next session by the Supreme Court. We've got, you know, uh, Amy Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh in there, and it's a 6-3 supermajority for Republicans. We can't necessarily, we really can't count on them to, uh, you know, give a crap about stare decisis or precedent in this case. Uh, we, are, we, we need to be prepared for the possibility that Roe v. Wade will be overturned And when it is, there are already uh, 10 states with trigger laws on the books and one with trigger law that will be on the books very soon, meaning that there's going to be 11 states where as soon as Roe v. Wade is um, uh, overturned, abortion will become basically illegal in those states. And then there's another 10, 11 states or so where, based on the composition of the legislatures and what we know about those states, abortion will probably become legal, very, very illegal, very, very quickly in those states as well. Which means that, as you said, exactly what we were yelling about in 2016 is very likely going to become true really soon that you won't be able to get an abortion in half the country. You know, and I don't want, well, I do want to go all handmaid's tell because, <laughs> because, you know, this is exactly what happened with the Voting Rights Act, right? During mm-hmm. Shelby County versus Holder where as soon as that decision came down, then those key provisions were removed or excluded from the Voting Rights Act. Immediately, I think it was like the next day or even the same day, these states moved in to restrict voting rights. Right. I, I, I expect the same thing to happen here. As soon as any decision comes down from the Supreme Court, there are going to be states that are poised to move in to outlaw abortion. And I, I don't think I'm being hyperbolic. No, you're not at all. You're not at all being hyperbolic. In fact, there's already states that have put themselves into position to, uh, you know, outlaw abortion the moment that Roe v. Wade is overturned. So it's not hyperbolic at all. It is a a certainty, unfortunately. And we need to be prepared for that by building power in the states wherever we can so that we can overturn these laws, right? The good thing about laws is that they can be changed. And the, uh, the, the tough thing is that they're controlled by legislators who are elected um, many times full circle under these gerrymandered maps, which makes it very hard to win. But, you know, we have to take a long-term vision here and we're thinking, okay, if we can't win this cycle or the next cycle, how do we build power to win maybe 10 years down the line, right? Because if that's what it's going to take, but we have to keep 
fighting for this. And I think one thing that we can do again is look to Virginia for some inspiration, some glimmer of hope that when you do have Democrats in power, you see amazing things. I mean, just on this voting rights bit, Virginia was one of the states that Shelby versus Holder, the case you just mentioned in 2013, that decimated a part, a very important um, Section 5 provision of the Voting Rights Act they basically said these states with a history of discrimination um, no longer need to get preclearance from the Department of Justice for any changes they're making. So like you said, what happened afterwards? People swept in with uh, voting rights changes that did discriminate and that had these um, disparate outcomes for people of color. But the amazing thing is that in Virginia, with a Democrat trifecta, they said, okay, if Shelby versus Holder means that nobody is going to, you know, look over our shoulder, we're going to put this restriction back in place for ourselves. We're going to put back into place uh, a pre-clearance-like provision. And I think that that's just... Uh, that's amazing, right? You know, you see like a state regulating itself in that way because um, they know how important it is. And that's what we can do when we've got Democrats in power. So what is Sister District's plan to combat all of this, like all of the things we just mentioned? And for the people who are listening, what are some concrete things they can do to help you get there or to help this? You know, we're sitting here and like, oh, my God, this is terrible. What can I do? What can the layperson do to help Sister District and to just help generally? Absolutely. So one thing I would plug is definitely redistricting is state by state. Uh, so, you know, if you're interested in the redistricting process, definitely look for opportunities for citizen action in your state. There's many things that are virtual now, of course, and it's a, a really important process to be a part of. The next thing is that we're really interested here at Sister District, solely interested in building progressive power in state legislatures because we believe deeply that this is where we can make a difference in the long term. And so we are in Virginia this year helping to hold a very, very fragile majority that is a bellwether and is going to demonstrate momentum for the midterms. It's not just Democrats that are looking at what's happening in Virginia, it's also Republicans. And Republicans, if they are able to pull off a win in Virginia this year to take over the House of Delegates, that is going to give them so much fire as they head into a midterms. It's already in their favor because, um, as you all know, um, you know the presidency, uh, the the president's party often loses, usually loses seats um, in the midterms. So. That's very, very important, what we're doing right now in Virginia this year. So sisterdistrict.com, you can sign up. You'll get connected with your local team. Or if you want, you can just join our mailing list and get our updates that way. And there's so many different ways to volunteer. If you're interested in volunteering, the best way really is to make phone calls. Talking to voters is the most effective way behind door knocking, which we can't really do right now again. But phone banking is incredibly, incredibly effective at turning people out, cleaning lists, making sure that campaigns have good data, identifying voters so that we can go back and make sure they've got all the information they need to vote when it's time to do so in November. And the other thing I would say is that 
money is activism too. And if you don't have time, perhaps you've got money. And if you do, I mean, donating is a very, very important um, uh, means of activism. It's incredibly important so that these staff members can get paid so that we can run digital ads so that we can keep our tech going to make these phone calls and so on and so forth. Um, and at Sister District, we've identified not only candidates who are on the front lines um, of uh, the, the these fights to keep our majorities, and we will do so, identify these candidates again in 2022 as we look into the midterms. But through our new State Bridges program, we've also identified a number of organizations that are people of color, women-led, youth-led in our key battleground states where you can support you know, this kind of long-term power building as well. So we're doing all kinds of things at Sister District and really encourage you to check us out at sisterdistrict.com if you're interested in you know, turning your uh, anxiety into some kind of action. A lot of volunteers have told me, you know, this is, it's cheaper and more effective than therapy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I, 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 can, I can vouch for the fact that it helps because I, I've been in a state of anxiety for like four or five years now. So it's constant. Yeah. So, um, yeah. but I do want to say that, because I think you and I had an exchange about this online on Twitter or something about starting now, like mm-hmm. don't wait until, you know, later this year, or the end of the year or next year, God forbid, like the time to start is now the time to start, you know, supporting candidates who are running in these state legislative races is now to start volunteering is like right now like you know when you like in this episode if you're listening exactly. you know and, and money too right like if you're not the type of person who wants to be on the phone talking to people and I get that like I talk on a podcast but I don't really like calling people money is good too <laughs> um but an, another thing you mentioned was about like getting involved in the process for drawing the maps I think you mentioned that and, and I think each state does it at a different time and I think those deadlines, I'm, I'm not really sure how you get involved, but I think the deadlines are posted on Ballopedia, maybe? Yeah, you can just, every state is different. So unfortunately, it's not super centralized, but you should be able to Google around and pretty quickly figure out when the next hearings are in your area and so on and how to get involved. But oh yeah, all of the deadlines across the states are different as well. Well, Lala Wu, thank you so much for joining me again. Um, again, you know, Sister District is, you know, one of my favorite organizations working on this in this area. So thank you for all of your work. I'll be watching what you're doing. And just thank you again. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you. 